Hello everyone, I'm Robert Allen. I'm a partner in the Disputes and Investigations team in uh, London and I'm chairing our podcast today uh, which looks ahead at regulatory and litigation risks arising from greenwashing, uh, in particular for consumer facing businesses. I'm joined by a panel of uh, ESG experts um, across the firm. Firstly, Mark Jeffcott, a partner in our competition team in London. Also, Alice Denis, supervising associate uh, in the dispute resolution team in Paris. And Emily Blower, managing associate in disputes and investigations in London. And Craig Gilchrist, a supervising associate also in disputes and investigations in London. So today we're going to be covering the regulatory response to the risk of greenwashing with a particular focus on consumer protection along with litigation risk and hopefully along the way we'll be offering practical tips on mitigating greenwashing risk. The regulators in particular we'll be looking at are the uh, Competition and Markets Authority, the Advertising Standards Authority and also we'll be looking at the EU Commission. Now, just before we start, to give you an idea of the scale of the issue, according to uh, Rep Risk, in the past year, that is September 22 to September 23, one in every four climate related ESG risk incident was tied to greenwashing. Also, the banks and financial services sectors saw a 70% increase in the number of climate related greenwashing incidents in the past year. Over 50% of these climate-specific greenwashing risk incidents either mentioned fossil fuels or linked to financial institution to an oil and gas company. And for many, the practices go hand in hand, with nearly one in three public companies linked to greenwashing also associated with social washing. And this is having an impact on companies' confidence around compliance with promoting or selling their sustainable products or services. Here at Simmons & Simmons, we conducted a global survey of the world's leading businesses and investors to explore opportunities in sustainability. Now, the key findings of the survey were, firstly, the vast majority of respondents believe those who invest in sustainability will perform best in the next five to ten years, seeing it as an avenue for growth and profit. However, legal risk, uh, most specifically uh, expressed by regulatory penalties and litigation, is the biggest sustainability related concern, with many feeling exposed to greenwashing claims. Secondly, senior executives say they are confident in their compliance with climate adaptation rules and sustainability reporting, but there is significantly less confidence with regulation on greenwashing or sustainability washing, with only 60% of respondents expressing faith in their ability to comply and less than 20% feeling very confident. Now, while there is optimism for ESG's business case, there is a particular uncertainty and almost a nervousness around compliance with regulators' approaches to greenwashing. And with that background in mind, let's look at the regulatory response to greenwashing, starting with the Competition and Markets Authority. Mark, it seems with the CMA, there's lots going on in greenwashing. Yeah, thanks, Rob. Yeah, a lot going on in greenwashing with the CMA. Um, So a couple of years ago now, in late 2021, the CMA published the so-called Green Claims Code. Uh, That's a code that basically supports the existing consumer protection rules under the uh, unfair trading regs of 2008. Uh, the, The code 
uh, broadly speaking, sets out six guiding principles that companies should follow. In a nutshell, it basically just says that companies should avoid using overly broad and vague terms uh, when describing their products, such as my product is eco-friendly. It needs to be more specific. Uh, and also you need to have some kind of evidence to back it up. Um, there's been pretty strict enforcement since the code came out. Um, so there have been investigations into the fashion industry. Uh, so in uh, July uh, 2022, there were investigations into ADOS, Boohoo and Asda about overly broad marketing language. Uh, there's been a general examination into the accuracy of green claims made about ho household essentials uh, such as food, drink and toiletries, uh, just to make sure shoppers are not being misled. Um, towards the end of last year, there were a couple of quite significant developments. Uh, so in October last year, although not strictly part of the CMA's greenwashing campaign itself, uh, the CMA announced uh, that it's investigating Worcester Bosch's marketing of its uh, hydrogen blend ready boilers. Uh, and indeed, this investigation formed part of the CMA's wider work looking at consumer protection issues in the green heating and insulation sector. And then very recently, so right at the end of last year, so in December last year, uh, the CMA announced uh, its investigation into green claims made by Unilever uh, regarding certain of its uh, household essential items. Uh, so according to the uh, publicly available press releases anyway, uh, the CMA is concerned that Unilever uh, may be overstating the use of vague and broad claims, uh, using unclear statements around recyclability uh, and using uh, so-called natural looking images and lo logos on its products. Okay, so the CMA very focused on doing a lot in relation to greenwashing. Um, is it doing much in much more in the sustainability space more generally? Um, yes, absolutely. Um, so, in fact, it's fair to say this CMA is is something you know at the forefront of uh, of the interaction between sustainability and competition law. Um, so, uh, early last year, the the CMA produced a draft uh, green agreements guidance, uh, which was uh, consulted on pretty heavily. Uh, and then uh, in late last year, so October last year, they they produced the final draft uh, of, of this guidance. Uh, and uh, it's fair to say it's a very permissive document. It adopts a very permissive approach uh, to agreements, collaboration between competitors uh, in the green space. A good example of this is their approach to so-called climate change agreements. Um, now, these agreements are, I think, uh, viewed as fairly unique in the competition world, uh, whereby agreements which contribute towards meeting the UK's binding uh, climate change targets can benefit from exemption, even where the benefits of that collaboration uh, accrue to consumers generally, so you know you and me, uh, in terms of things like cleaner air, and not just those involved in the relevant affected market. And that is quite an important step and goes further than, for instance, guidance issued by uh, the European Commission. 
Um, the latest, uh, the, the final guidance goes even further than the already very permissive draft uh, in that it gives a specific acknowledgement that agreements between shareholders to vote in support of corporate policies uh, that pursue green goals, or indeed those that don't, is unlikely to fringe in fringe competition law. And again, that's pretty avant-garde. It's you know very useful and comforting to you know the asset managers of this world, not really being followed elsewhere. Uh, but as far as the UK goes, it's pretty progressive. In addition to that, the uh, the guidance talks talks about its open door policy. Now this takes me back to the halcyon days of the fireside chats uh, with the Office of Fair Trading. Basically, they're saying, come and speak to us about your collaboration. If you have any concerns, it's going too far. We might be concerned about it, and you'll get a sympathetic ear. Uh, and this has been exemplified. Uh, by the recent blessing uh, of the Fair, Fair Trade Foundation's new so-called shared impact initiative uh, last month uh, that involved the use of longer term supply arrangements with retailers to provide fair trade producers with the security they need to invest in sustainable practices, including uh, sustainable farming practices. So in sum, uh, this guidance builds on the draft. Uh, there's a sense from the CMA uh, that you know we've opened the door <laughs> now it's up to you to walk through it so, so come you know, come to us with examples under the open door policy great thanks mark and lots going on there so from uh one uh, regulator to a very different type of body possibly the quasi regulator the advertising standards agency um Craig, it's long had a mandate to address environmental claims in consumer facing advertising but uh, it's only quite recently started really narrowing in on greenwashing as an issue. Um, what's the ASA's approach been in recent decisions? Yeah, so the ASA uh, to date has largely been censoring companies where these companies have been promoting their green products or services without disclosing the full extent of their ungreen activities. Um, and in a, a recent interview, the head of the ASA, Guy Parker, uh, called these so-called lazy green claims um, and expressed a desire very much for companies to clean up their act. Uh, the, there are three example decisions from last year uh, which shows the ASA's direction of travel and, and very much what we can see from, from the year ahead. Um, the first one of these uh, goes all the way back to April uh, 2023, and it was a censure against Etihad Airways, uh, where the ASA took exception to two adverts that Etihad put on Facebook uh, that promoted Etihad as a conscious choice for the planet. Um, Etihad sought to justify uh, this on the basis that the claims were intended to be understood as part of their long-term and multifaceted process um, in which it had an aspiration to reach net zero by 2050. Um, however, the ASA said no, customers would read those adverts and would have understood them as promoting a, a, a immediate solution to the environmental impacts of the aviation industry. And the, the ASA kind of quite, quite rightly uh, said that adverts were misleading. The next decision was uh, Shell, Repsol and Petronas, uh, and that was this, uh, in June last year. This was very much the same approach again, uh, the ASA assessing social media posts that the companies uh, put out. And um, whilst the ASA said that it agreed, 
uh, that customers would be aware of the uh, of their ungreen activities. The ASA nevertheless held that the ads were misleading as they didn't give any sense of the fact that these ungreen activities actually constituted the vast majority of their activities and that actually the green products which were being promoted in these adverts only represented a very small proportion of their total activities. Turning lastly then to Repsol uh, in October 20, uh, last year, again this was an advert on the FT website and the, and the ASA said that the impression was that uh, these renewable energy products that were being promoted comprised a significant proportion of Repsol's uh, product offering where, whereas it did not. So that's a, a, a quite an activity uptick from the Advertising Standards Authority. What can companies learn from that and its approach to greenwashing to date? Yeah, so I, I mean, it's important to know, uh, firstly, that these aren't full penalties like you would receive from a regulator such as the CMA, and they don't have precedent effect. But nevertheless, they do have a significant reputational impact. I think what companies can learn is that the ASA is going to be persistent in pursuing uh, greenwashing in advertising. Um, there was a raft of decisions in December 2023 uh, and, and January this year um, in a range of sectors from brewing, such as the decision against Brewdog, all the way to clothing and a decision against Charles Turret. Um, the ASA has also kind of noted its its key uh, targets. So Etihad also had a decision against it in December 23, and Repsol, uh, as I mentioned earlier, had decisions in June and October 2023. So the overriding message is that the consumer will take at face value claims made by companies promoting their green credentials, um, and therefore these claims need to be presented accurately with all the relevant information. Um, the ASA said that the consumer should not be expected to consider the context of the advert, such as the relevant industry, um, and that the company will be required to explain this to them. Finally, uh, the ASA headed off any concerns from the industry about green hushing, which is uh, where companies are uh, afraid to share their sustainable practices due to fears of greenwashing. Um, and, and the ASA said that it wants companies to promote their green activities with a balanced view. And so practically speaking, what can companies take to avoid uh, meeting the same fates as some of those companies you have gone through? Yeah, so I think um, some practical tips uh, is really when a company is seeking to make a green claim, it needs to ask itself, is the claim specific enough? Um, does it take into account the full cycle of the product or services? Um, also, it needs to ask, uh, does the claim reflect the full kind of ESG impact of my business activities? Um, and, and does it need to be qualified to give any uh, kind of indication as to the proportion of my green versus ungreen activities? Um, and then finally, with regards to that qualifying information, does that consumer have the qualifying information to hand? Is it in close proximity to the claim? Um, and I think uh, just providing a hyperlink will probably not be enough, as this happened in the Repsol October decision, where the uh, where Repsol argued that the consumer could just click through to the website, and this was not accepted by the ASA. Um, and so the qualifying information has to be very much on the face of the document. The ASA does have now an, an active ad monitoring tool, which is an AI-led tool, uh, which it is now claim, claiming to pick up uh, infringing adverts, such as the Etihad uh, uh, decision in December last year. So I think 
um, yes, companies watch this space, the, uh, the the motivation for the ASA to act is no longer a complaint. You can be found out. Great, thank you, Craig. Um, Alice, turning to the European Commission, how's the EU addressing greenwashing? Well, first, uh, what we can say is that the EU regulations already address indirectly greenwashing, notably through the EU Unfair Commercial Practices Directive. For example, in France, NGOs filed a lawsuit for greenwashing against Total Energies on the grounds of domestic French legislation implementing the EU Unfair Commercial Practices Directive. And this is the first case challenging an oil and gas company's net zero claims for greenwashing in Europe. But the EU Unfair Commercial Practices Directive, as currently drafted, is not sufficient to properly address greenwashing. So this has this has to be regulated as the European Commission study of 2020 found that consumers are faced with a lot of claims on the green nature of products, but 53% of green claims are vague, misleading or unfunded, and 40% of claims have no supporting evidence. So the consequence is that consumer trust in green claims is extremely low. And in the absence of specific EU rules, consumers cannot be sure that these claims are reliable, comparable, and verifiable throughout the EU. This is why the European Commission has proposed a Green Claims Directive to stop companies from making misleading claims about environmental merits of their products and to establish a clear regime for environmental claims and labels. Um, as for now, the directive proposal was published on March 2023, and last September, the Council and Parliament reached provisional agreement. So the next step is uh, the formal adoption of the directive. And the, the Green Claims Directive, how will it achieve its aims and what kind of claims are going to be covered by it? So as we said, the existing directives are not sufficient. So the aim is to enhance consumers' rights by amending um, the Unfair Commercial Practices Directive and the Consumer Rights Directive and adapting them from the green transition. So the main purpose of the Green Claims Directive is to ensure that consumers for the products they buy receive trustworthy information regarding the environmental credentials. In order to achieve this goal, the directive first requires companies to substantiate their voluntary green claims, then set requirements on how to communicate those claims, and introduces rules on environmental labeling schemes. So for example, it has been agreed that the directive will proscribe generic environmental claims such as envir environmentally friendly, natural, biodegradable, climate neutral, or eco without proof. Mm. It will also prescribe claims based on emissions offsetting schemes that a product has neutral, reduced, or positive impact on the environment. Also claims um, uh, presenting goods that are repairable when they are not, mm. and uh, durability claims in terms of usage time or intensity under normal conditions if it's not proven. How will these claims then be monitored? So um, they, um, they are first we, uh, we have to 
to say that they, they are defined very broadly. So it's any message or representation in any form in the context of a commercial communication, which states or implies that a product or trader has a positive or no impact on the environment or is less damaging than another product or traders. So it targets really like a lot of claims and it addresses environmental labeling by stopping the proliferation of public and private labels. So the proposal requires that these green claims, such as a packaging made of 30% recycled plastic, bee-friendly juice, carbon composite ride, or commitment to reduce CO2 emissions, must be substantiated. Member states will be responsible for setting up verification and enforcement processes that will be performed by uh, independent verifiers and they will check if the claims are supported with scientific evidence and if any comparisons between products must be fair and based on equivalent information and data. Regarding labels, they should be transparent and verified. New public schemes unless developed at the EU level will not be allowed and new private schemes are only allowed if they can show higher environmental ambition than the existing ones. And and how will the directive then affect companies in and outside the EU? So the companies will have to ensure the reliability of their voluntary green claims and communicate their claims in a transparent way. The Green Claims Directive applies to all industries and companies selling goods and services in the EU, but companies which count fewer than 10 employees and less than 2 million euros turnover are exempt. And regarding companies based outside of the EU, if they make voluntary green claims directed at EU consumers, they will also have to respect the requirements set out in the proposed directive. Great, thanks. Uh Alice, certainly a um, potentially very significant directive. So finally, let's turn to greenwashing litigation and you, Emily. Um, what are the types of litigious claims that we are seeing brought at the moment um, in respect to greenwashing? Well, essentially, these are misrepresentation claims, um, and it's important to remember that they rely on established principles. They're not based on new legislation or case precedent specifically for greenwashing. And we've seen a number of examples of misrepresentation type cases concerning net zero claims, airlines in particular, but also uh, against oil and gas companies. Um, and for 2024, I'm expecting to see an increase uh, in securities class actions against listed companies using sections 90 and 90 of the Financial Services Markets Act uh, here in the UK, some of which could well be greenwashing claims. Now, certainly we've seen a lot of interest from funders and claimant law firms in pursuing ESG related securities class actions, um, given that it remains such a hot topic. So in order to garner that claimant, uh, potential claimant support, they're using that ESG label. But it's also worth bearing in mind the risk of parallel proceedings. So litigation being inspired by regulator or quasi-regulated decisions, or perhaps even vice versa. And we saw this in a claim being pursued against KLM in the Netherlands following the Dutch advertising watchdog's decision that uh, KLM's sustainability advert was misleading. 
Um, and finally, we should also remember that there's also um, non-judicial type procedures available. And we had a very recent example of that in the OECD complaint that was brought in December last year against British Airways and the Virgin uh, Atlantic, arguing that the airlines are misleading consumers about their environmental credentials. What are the challenges that claimants will typically face in bringing these types of claims? Well, there's three that I want to, uh, that I'd like to highlight today. Um, firstly, it's loss. I mean, has anything actually been suffered? Um, did that green, that non-green investment actually perform worse than the green one that should have been invested into? Did it perform better? Um, the second is knowledge or recklessness. So a claimant actually has to prove that the person discharging managerial responsibility knew or was reckless as a to the untrue or misleading statement. And third is reliance. Often, though not always, the claimant will need to prove that it relied on the statement in question. Great, thanks, Emily. Again, as with all the topics we've looked at, I think um, a, a lot of potential for change and escalation over uh, the, the coming year. Um, now, all of these developments and more can be found in our ESG litigation and regulatory investigations tracker, uh, which is a superb tool uh, that helps you stay ahead of the curve with records of key ESG related claims and regulatory actions that continue to shape the landscape of ESG disputes. In addition to that, um, you can also sign up to our ESG disputes radar. Uh, these are ad hoc email briefings and they'll keep you up to date by delivering key updates when they happen to help adapt to ESG disputes developments likely to impact your organization. And links to both the tracker and radar can be found in the description to this podcast. Thank you very much for joining us today. I hope you found uh, what we've been talking about of value. And if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to any of us. Mm -hmm.